With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Get Connected with Nina Del Rio, a weekly conversation about fitness, health, and happenings in our community on 106.7 Light FM. Good morning and thanks for listening to Get Connected. During this pandemic, human services nonprofits of New York City have been providing vital life-saving services to the city's most vulnerable communities and many others who thought they'd never need them. Meanwhile, amid unprecedented demand, these same nonprofits are facing risks of their own due to rising rents and gentrification. For a discussion about the challenges to community-based organizations in the city, our guests are Betsy McLean of Hester Street and Jeremy Saunders of Vocal New York. Thanks for being on Get Connected. Thanks for having us. The websites for both are hesterstreet.org and vocal-ny.org. And I'm going to let you maybe give more introduction about what you do. So, Betsy, can you start and tell us more about what Hester Street does? So at Hester Street, we devote kind of urban planning, design, and development expertise to support community-led change. So we do that in a bunch of different ways. We kind of create and facilitate participatory planning and policy making in order to advance racial and economic justice. Uh, our whole thing is, is cities need to be shaped by the people who live in them. Uh, for, for, for throughout history, low-income communities of color have been left out of the, the design, development, and planning conversation. Uh, we feel like this is a really important step towards racial justice and, and equity, ensuring that, that people who know their neighborhoods best and know what they want and need best um, are the ones who are making decisions about, uh, about their neighborhoods and about, about the city. Uh, one super important aspect of our work uh, and, and why we're, we're here this morning uh, talking with you is that we provide real estate development technical assistance to community-based organizations throughout the city. Uh, and that the idea behind that is to kind of advance long-term sustainability for the organization and also kind of community control of neighborhood assets and preservation of our neighborhood. And one of the organizations you've been working with a lot lately has been Vocal New York. Jeremy, what does Vocal New York provide to the community? What services and who is your membership base? We do two things. We organize low-income people impacted by HIV and AIDS, the war on drugs, mass incarceration, and homelessness to win political changes. Uh, the other thing we do is provide, as you said, life-saving harm reduction services. So specifically, we run a harm reduction program that provides syringe exchange uh, to decrease HIV and hepatitis C transmission, overdose prevention training and education, and a range of services to people who, are, uh, who use drugs and most of whom are homeless or unstably housed. So, Betsy, Hester Street just produced a new report, Essential and at Risk, the Power of Community-Based Organizations and the Danger of Displacement. What are CBOs and why are they so important to the neighborhoods they serve? 
So community-based organizations, CBOs, are really essential to neighborhood, the neighborhood ecosystem. And in New York, you know, they've been around for so long, and they're so prevalent and it's such an important part of our everyday lives that I think sometimes we take them for granted. Um, we really like to, because we're planners, so we like to think in terms of infrastructure, <laughs> and we really like to think about CBOs as kind of essential infrastructure, as essential as kind of plumbing and sewer pipes and all the stuff that we know, electricity, the electricity grid, all of the stuff that, that keeps the, the city moving, CBOs are, are just as essential, we would argue. Um, CBOs provide a whole range of services. Uh, Jeremy talked about the work that, that Vocal New York does. Other organizations provide education, housing, health services. They also build neighborhood power like Vocal through community organizing. And I think one of the things that we like to really kind of talk about a lot is how CBOs also just make neighborhoods feel like home. Uh, they make neighborhoods recognizable to folks who've lived there for a really long time, it, especially as neighborhoods are changing rapidly through gentrification. CBOs are kind of like they've been around, they've been serving people in the neighborhood forever. They're, they're the kind of marker that says, ah, this is, I belong, that this, this, is, this is my community, this is my home. Um, I think, you know, what we've seen during the, the COVID crisis um, has really kind of demonstrated or underlined the critical role in, in our neighborhoods, in our city, always kind of when we face a, a, just a really crippling disaster like COVID. It is unfailingly <laughs> CBOs who kind of step up um, and kind of fill in the gaps when city, the city isn't, isn't able to respond fast enough, doesn't respond fast enough. CBOs are there serving their neighborhoods, providing emergency cash and food assistance, emergent, providing you know, life-saving information um, that otherwise communities wouldn't be getting. Even before COVID, though, 86% of uh, nationwide nonprofit leaders said demand for their services was rising, and I think 60% said they could not meet that demand. So the financial challenges CBOs face regularly it's been impacted, I would assume, hugely by COVID. Absolutely. I think, you know, as the demand has increases, certainly during the, the crisis, but we know that, that we're only seeing the beginning part of this crisis, of the impacts of the crisis, especially on black and brown New Yorkers and in low-income neighborhoods throughout the city, uh, that, that this is only going to get wor worse. The economic fallout from the crisis is going to continue to impact communities. And, and at the same time, rents aren't stopping. <laughs> you know, rents, rents continue to rise. Um, and many of the folks that CBOs serve are left out of government relief programs, which I think is a really important point to kind of to sit on for a second, um, that, you know, these folks who are losing their jobs, who don't have health insurance, um, who don't have access to the kinds of even small business owners who don't have access to the kinds of programs that, uh, that so far the federal government, but also the state and city government have offered, um, have largely been left out of those emergency programs. And so they have been overwhelmingly turning to CBOs to kind of fill that gap. So CBOs have so much more work to do. Meanwhile, there is a capital grants program, CAP grants, designed to provide city funding for projects to help serve these organizations, but there's some challenges in accessing that funding, correct? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing, right? Building anything in New York City is really hard to do. Uh, it's an island. You know, there, there isn't a whole lot of land to, to, to choose from. Um, building is expensive. Uh, it's challenging. We have a ton of, you know, elevated trains, underground trains. We have lots of obstacles and, and challenges for, for building anything in New York City. Um, I would argue that building community facilities, kind of standalone spaces, community spaces for folks in the neighborhood to come to, to access these survival services, to access community organizing spaces for communities to come together, um, is almost impossible, especially as a nonprofit. When you have, you don't have a balance sheet to be able to look back at. You don't have an endowment uh, to be able to draw from. Uh, so. The CAP Grants Program is kind of this, like, miracle, frankly. It's, it's this amazing opportunity to, to really to pull in this kind of essential capital to make both the acquisition and construction of standalone community facilities possible. Um, it's different than affordable housing. You've been doing affordable housing for some time. There, are, I'm not saying it's, it's a perfect system. There are lots of problems, and building affordable housing is really hard. I did it for a number of years. Um, uh, but, but there are a number of sources to be able to pull from, funding sources to be able to pull from. Uh, you also have that kind of ongoing income from rent that helps support the operating of the building. For community facilities, not only do the, the kind of initial funding sources don't exist, um, but also that ongoing operating, that really just keeps going back to the, the community-based organizations and their ongoing efforts to raise funds from foundations on government to secure government contracts and, and otherwise. Um, so the CAP Grants Program, in a lot of ways, is like this, this amazing, uh, really amazing opportunity to, for, for CBOs to, to really be able to kind of pull the to really kind of make their mark in their neighborhoods, uh, to own their spaces, to buy their buildings, uh, and then secure themselves financially now and long into the future. Um, the problem is uh, the program is, is just unnecessarily challenging um, on every, pretty much every aspect. And we go through kind of each stage of the program in our report. I mean, high level, the application process is really super challenging unless you have, you've hired both architectural and real estate development uh, technical assistance consultants uh, to help you out with the application. It's, it's impossible to fill out. Um, and those funding for those consultants is not, is, is not provided, nor is it, is it an, an eligible expense for CAP grants. So that's number one, is just the application process is super challenging. Then once you get into the process and you kind of, you, you're able to secure the funding, uh, which is really an amazing feat to be able to do, and that really is, is a combination of, you know, really great programs, a track record of serving New, York, New Yorkers, um, and also uh, relationships with uh, the city council. Um, so once you secure that money, um, the problem, I mean, I would say the biggest problem is it's a reimbursement grant. And so the, you know, which is, again, like kind of unheard of in capital projects where a nonprofit, especially a nonprofit facing, you know, what we could say is an unprecedented financial landscape <laughs> to then have to lay out hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in advance to then be reimbursed by the city. To be able to do that, you have to take out a loan, a kind of a commercial loan that bridges the, the city financing 
those commercial loans come with very high interest rates. And so essentially you're tacking on this unnecessary expense to the project that can already not afford, you know, that already is operating within very tight margins. On top of that, the reimbursement process, first the contract review process to get the contract registered and then from there to start to apply for reimbursement for the money that you've laid out can take minimum one year and then we've been worked on, working on projects where it's been more than four years and we still don't have a contract. The money was allocated four years ago, we still don't have a contract. So all that time, the nonprofit that we've been working with has laid out their own money, paying the interest on the financing that bridges the money that was allocated to them by the city of New York. Let's talk to Jeremy about the challenges Vocal New York, which you have been working with, has faced in this area after we remind everybody who they're listening to. Betsy McLean of Hester Street and Jeremy Saunders of Vocal NY are our guests today. It's a discussion about the challenges to community-based organizations in the city. You're listening to Get Connected on 106.7 Light FM. I'm Nina Del Rio. So, Jeremy, Vocal New York was recently forced out of your headquarters. What happened there? Yeah, and I should say we're we're still in our current office. Our lease runs out at the end of April when we will be forced out. So we've been in our current space on 4th Avenue in St. Mark's in Brooklyn uh, for close to 20 years. We had uh, worked with Hester Street, who's really a phenomenal organization at supporting groups like ours to do the unthinkable. And the unthinkable in this situation is ownership of space, right? It's just an impossibility for organizations like uh, Vocal and, and really with Hester Street support uh, navigating and supporting through this capital grants program by the, by the city, that it, it really provides this opportunity that just would never, ever exist. So I, I, I just want to really uh, highlight the work that Hester Street does and the importance of this capital grants program, despite all the uh, difficulties that that Betsy laid out. So uh, in our situation, Hester Street actually worked with us to say, hey, given all the complexities of New York real estate and the CAPS uh, grant program, your best option is to buy your building, to buy the building that you've already been in. And we said from the start, well, the bad thing is, is, it's actually not enough space, but the good thing is, is we've been here so long and ownership would mean, you know, we would be able to protect ourselves against development and gentrification. We would be able to provide a permanent home for our, uh, for those we serve who are struggling with, with homelessness. Um, unfortunately, what happened is what happens all too often in New York and in Brooklyn uh, is as we move forward with the process and thought we had a deal with uh, the owner of the building. That deal fell apart when uh, a large development corporation came in and offered them a much sweeter deal than we ever could. Uh, And now our current space and the space right next to ours is slated to become yet another tower uh, of condos here on 4th Avenue. Um, So when, and I should mention that part of the reason this even happened is what what Betsy referenced is uh, New York real estate uh, does not operates very quickly, and the CAPS uh, grant program doesn't. So our ability to be able to literally access this money, get it to a uh, to our owner, uh, was so slow that it 
that's kind of what provided the opportunity for this uh, developer to come in and buy it, which, by the way, is not the criticism at all on, I think, some of the political issues you're going to bring up. It's, it's really just a problem with the capital grants program specifically. Uh, so for us, uh, we, we turned to Hester Street yet again, and the good news was after much work and much frustration, we were able to find another space uh, that is still here in our community. It's actually not too far away. And um, we were able to negotiate a deal where we would rent and renovate the property and then be able to to, to purchase it. Um, and thankfully, this property is also about twice as large as our space. Um, so, you know, there's some downsides to it. But overall, we were able to secure a place that we think we could provide a permanent home for our for our life-saving work. Just to sort of clarify a little bit, Jeremy, too, you talked about gentrification. So 55 of fi- or 15 rather of 55 of New York City's neighborhoods are gentrifying. How does gentrification directly affect any nonprofit's ability to provide services? It does a couple of things. So one, it makes the possibility of ownership an impossibility, right? And and ownership of a space is important in a couple ways. It is obviously important to developing a basically a budget plan where you're not constantly under threat of increasing rent or devastating change changes to your program, like when you're forced out. But then as we went through this whole process, what we found was there was another pretty deep psychological impact for our staff, but mostly for the people we serve, which is for so many of, of our people, they have been forced out of their communities through gentrification. They have often been forced into the streets. They are people who have or had struggled with homelessness. So there becomes like a psychological component here of the importance of permanence, the importance of having a home. So while vocal is you know, sometimes blocking the road and fighting to win housing for all here in New York. And as we're providing services to people to try to help them get housed and get healthy, uh, it becomes really important for all those people that Vocal also has a permanent home and can't be pushed out and, frankly, can't be pushed around. Since we're here, too, I need to ask, because it's just been in uh, headlines lately, Vocal had recently signed, as you mentioned, a 15-year lease on a new space, a $1.5 million renovation. And then at the end of July, you learned you lost out on $2.25 million of funding by the city. What happened there? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, at the end of the city budget, we came to realize that the $2.25 million that we had planned to use to purchase this new property was no longer there. We have come out and questioned the role of Speaker Johnson in that and, you know, accused him of political retaliation. We're also reaching out in hopes of finding some resolution on that. And, you know, I think that's that's where that stands right now. And if you don't mind, I wanted to take a step further and say that not only with this capital grants program, but, but really what nonprofits around the state are facing is, you know, our governor is, it's been recently in the press, our governor not paying out contracts so that organizations across the state are furloughing workers and stopping programs. There's budget cuts that 
the city is facing and city organizations are facing. So, you know, whether this is the capital grants program, whether this is our governor who's refusing to even pay contracts uh, that organizations are waiting for to provide life-saving services, as you said, it's a really, it's a pretty terrifying time for organizations like ours. And, you know, a vocal New York, like so many other groups, uh, did stay open through COVID. We were, we are an essential organization and, and have been providing these life-saving services the entire time. So back to CAP grants, uh, Betsy, CAP grants, what is Hester Street's recommendation? What do you believe is the solution to that particular problem? Yeah, so we have, you know, a number of recommendations. I mean, I will just say quickly, I think, you know, Jeremy's point about the incredible role uh, that that nonprofits have been playing during, you know, what is arguably one of the hardest times that our, our city has faced. And then to be, you know, really to, to, um, to on the back end of that, to be uh, at the mercy of decision makers pulling funding at a time when that's all, they, you know what I mean, need funding more than ever um, is really unconscionable, um, frankly. So to your, to your question, <laughs> um, our recommendations are, are, are the following. One, one of the outcomes of this opaque application process and the kind of a, the CAP grants process adds to these kinds of community facility development projects is that the money, by and large, goes to larger organizations, kind of big, sophisticated organizations, mostly Manhattan-based. Um, arguably not the folks that, that need this kind of long-term security the most. Um, so uh, we have a bunch of, org- uh, a bunch of um, recommendations on the application process. Let's make that an easier process, a lower, you know, kind of lower the barriers for entry here. Um, capital projects are hard. They're not right for everyone. Absolutely agree with that. Um, and uh, there are so many organizations that currently are paying uh, enough money in rent to support a long-term mortgage for their space, but for an infusion of capital from CAP grants program, you know, they're, they're good to go. They've been doing this for years. They've been paying uh, this, the, the level of money that they would have to pay to a private lender for a mortgage for years. Uh, so let's do that. <laughs> let's invest any money in long-term sustainability as opposed to city capital then going to, um, you know, city operating grants, a huge portion of that going to private landlords. Um, we really feel like, again, the city really needs to prioritize community-based organizations. They, they already invest billions of dollars in CBOs, in these contracts that support the kinds of life, life-saving services that, that Jeremy was talking about, that Vocal kind of does every single day. Um, let's go ahead and back up that investment, rationalize that investment with uh, an investment in kind of long-term sustainability of the organizations in ownership. So that requires, you know, we just need to prioritize these projects and kind of realize that we just need to to solve for this problem. Um, And then we have these tools. The CAP Grants Program exists. It's, It's an amazing thing. Most cities don't have a program like this. We need to make them work. So we need to change this from a, a reimbursement grant to as the, the money is allocated, then it needs to kind of come into the, the project as soon as you're able to register your contract, kind of go through the, the you know, reasonable due diligence that the city requires. 
Um, we need to speed up that contracting process. It needs to be less than a year, I would say, um, and certainly less than four or five years, which is what we've been seeing. Uh, and then once we do that, then CBOs will no longer have to take on this additional expense of, of interest payment to bridge the financing. I think a couple of other, you know, kind of outside of CAP grants, other recommendations are, you know, we have, and it's a flawed system, and we all know that we have an affordable housing crisis in New York City, and that is with, <laughs> you know, some some limited but, but some important um, rent protections like rent regulation. Um, what we don't have any of are commercial lease protections. And so that's, that applies to both small businesses and to community-based organizations. There's been legislation kind of going around for years now to really uh, be able to preserve the affordability of our neighborhoods, not just for the, the residents that have lived there forever, but also for the small businesses and the community-based organizations that have served them. Um, so it feels that so that seems like another kind of easy win um, to to go ahead and protect the kinds of infrastructure that we know makes an, an equitable and healthy neighborhood. Jeremy, do you want to add anything else? There's been a lot to think about. Um, anything else about you know your concerns yeah. long term? Yeah. You know, I think there's a real misconception by some people out there about nonprofits, about the idea that nonprofits. Uh, strive to get more city government contracts um, and the role nonprofits play in using up taxpayer dollars. The, the reality is many nonprofits like Vocal, most nonprofits I would say, actually wish they didn't have to exist. We exist because, as Betsy said earlier, the government either doesn't fill a critical role and need for the people, or when they attempt to fill it, they do it inadequately. And, you know, Speaker Johnson, when interviewed, uh, brought up how Vocal has been given, um, I think he said, $400,000, $450,000 in uh, operating and expense budget. And what he didn't mention was that actually over the years, Vocal's uh, government contracts have grown a lot. They've grown a lot because, unfortunately, our city was unable to address the rising overdose crisis spreading here across the state and across the country. And actually, our government reached out and encouraged us to try to take on more contracts so that we could expand our services. That's happening across the city, across the state, and across the country. As Betsy is saying, you know, throughout neighborhoods and communities across the city and state, it's these nonprofits that are forced into the role of providing necessary services that the government isn't providing. And we do that despite the fact that on the state level, our governor has refused to increase contracts to, that, that literally would just go to raising wages and pulling uh, people out of poverty who are providing anti-poverty and life-saving services. Uh, our our governor currently is refusing to pay out contracts. We, so it's nonprofit organizations exist because of a vacuum that the government isn't filling. And the workers, many of the staff and workers at these nonprofits are struggling themselves because of the lack of investments our government makes. 
And what Betsy and Hester Street is offering, as she laid out, is not only the permanence and the ownership that is critical to us providing quality services, but it also, as she said, actually reduces uh, the tax dollars going to us paying rent and goes instead to us owning property that we eventually will, will own outright and be able to expand our services and care and not focus on these issues of growing rents and developers coming in and buying up our spaces. I think that's a great place to end and a really great point. Jeremy Saunders represents Vocal New York, Betsy McLean of Hester Street. Websites are hesterstreet.org and vocal-ny.org. Thanks for being on Get Connected. Thanks. Thank you. This has been Get Connected with Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it, visit our website for downloads and podcasts at 1067lightfm.com. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.